This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host today is Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Uh, our discussion today is not tied to the offer of investment products. The views are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We have an econ Friday. We had the we had the employment report this morning. Uh, we're going to get some reactions from a economics professor, also a very close Fed watcher. We have a lot of Fed news in the news here. Uh, Tim Dewey is a return guest, a professor of practice in the economics department at the University of Oregon. Also a senior director for the Oregon Economic Forum. Uh, he writes a regular blog called Tim Dewey's Fed Watch. Tim, thanks for joining us on the program today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Um, so the, the uh, lot of news on the on the economy side and some some Fed uh, some Fed Watch right up your alley. Um, but maybe as you look at the latest economic report this morning, sort of a better than expected jobs number. What's your what's your read on on the uh, on the employment report? Well, the, but obviously the job market is doing quite well still. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be most likely a record-breaking expansion here, uh, and it hasn't shown a lot of signs of easing up. You know, despite you know being almost ten years old. Uh, I think the other thing we can we can really say here is if you're really worried about an impending recession, you know, at the end of last year. Uh, you know those fears you know should have been moderated at this point certainly that that recession never never is has shown up um so you know a, a, a really kind of goldilocks report again solid job growth steady unemployment you know solid wage growth i know i know professor siegel uh often will look at the participation rate saying that's one of the key indicators of slack and so that came in we sort of ticked down in the participation rate how do you think about that that sort of part of the, the report you know certainly what we would like over time and that you know that tick down or tick up is 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 there's a lot of noise on on a monthly basis there you know what we have traditionally seen over the um uh you know over the the recent couple of years is that the job market has been able to grow stronger because labor force participation has, has been growing a little bit more than expected. You know, there is a concern, certainly, that at some point in the next couple of years, we're going to lose some of that momentum because of the aging of the baby boomers, and maybe we won't be able to sustain 200,000 jobs a month. Uh, but right now, uh, you know, certainly the, there's a big case to be made for letting the economy grow, uh, you know, as strong as it can for as long as it can. And uh, that seems to be the situation we're, we're, we're in. Um, you know, everybody was talking about the inversion of the curve, and uh, we've got we got some you know the, the the President Trump talking this morning about maybe we need to cut rates, we need to stop this quantitative tightening. How are you looking at the dynamics in the yield curve and where the Fed is? Like, what's your current read on 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 that? 
Right. So uh, I've I've been a, a faithful follower of the, of the yield curve for some uh, some time. Uh, I don't know if there's necessarily a causal relationship, but that there's certainly a, a correlation between uh, you know an inverted yield curve and um, recessions. Now, what I've tended to uh, really focus on is periods when the yield curve inverts. Uh, and the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates. Those are, to me, the most dangerous pl- times uh, you know, for, for, for worrying about recessions. You know, right now, we had a, a, an inversion in the yield curve, uh, and the Federal Reserve did not, though, choose to, to continue raising interest rates, at least as far as we, we, we know so far this year, um, uh, had, but instead really lowered the rate forecast. Uh, to me, that's a good sign. Uh, you know, holding a fairly flat yield curve for a fairly long period of time, much like we did in the late 1990s, uh, I think would be consistent with a, um, a fairly solid economy. Um, so right now, I'm hopeful. I sometimes think, well, maybe the Fed might want to cut rates a little bit as insurance, uh, but it's, I think, from their perspective, hard to do that given where the data is at. Yeah, I mean, uh, Siegel, we had uh, Loretta Messer on the program right at the after the December meeting, and Siegel was pretty adamant to her. You made a mistake. You're not reading the situation correctly. And uh, and so he was pretty aggressive. I mean, do you do you think um, if if they're coming up at this next meeting that now or do you have the two year below the three month? You know, is that is that something they really need to bring down? I I think that right now it's sort of on, on a, on a um, uh, you know, basically on a tipping point. Is that they could go either way? I don't think it. I think that the move they made to drive down the expected path of rates was an important move. Um, I usually don't think that 25 basis points is really a quote unquote you know, a, a mistake that you can't walk away from. Um, but I would agree that I would not have hiked rates in December. I think that has caused them more more concern, problems than um, uh, they really needed um, on, a, on a number of different fronts, both economic and political. Um, and there really wasn't a pressing need for that rate hike. There wasn't uh, some inflationary outburst. Uh, they could have always come back to it in January. And maybe if they had really done that, they wouldn't have come back to it. They would have left it 25 basis points lower than it is now. So I think there's a lot going on um, uh, with you know, with that right now. Um, but I think really the important thing is that they seem, most important thing is they seem to have walked away from uh, the idea of raising rates this year. Yeah, they certainly, I mean, they're obviously going to be data dependent and you never know, you know, is it just this normal, typical first quarter slowdown and we're going to get back, uh, sort of growth will come back in the second half and and then things will be come back on the table. Um, you're definitely seeing some talking. I, I think people said Harker was, uh, was was quoted there saying maybe later this year you still need something, you know, so maybe it just gets a little bit better that markets bounce back and, and they're back, you know, so we'll have to see how it develops. Right, that's the 2015-2016 script, right? We're in December 2015. They raised interest rates. It was the first high rate hike of the cycle. Um, you know, that was arguably not the best timed rate hike, too. It was arguably one that they sort of had model-induced rather than really paying attention to what was going on. They clearly had to really back off those expectations of rate hikes for 2016. Uh, and then by the end of 2016, the situation is stabilized enough that they felt like they could return to rate hikes. So that's the script that he's giving essentially there. You know, uh, this time around, though, you know, we're, we're, we're closer to the end of the cycle than the beginning, so it's probably a different situation. Um, how do you look at the, you know, when you think about the, the, the big face, the decisions they're facing, 
you know, there's this whole debate on on the Phillips curve. Are, is the is the unemployment rate going to ever feed into wage growth? And and there's some conversations on that. Like, where do you strike? Where we got, we were getting, you know, with consistent, or we are getting three percent consistent uh, ticks up in in wage growth. Is that bound to accelerate? Like, where where are you on that debate? You know, at this point. It's hard to say that there's going to be an outbreak of inflation. There seems to be fairly low inflation psychology throughout the population. Uh, and that's, I, I think, probably an important factor in uh, restraining uh, upward pressure on inflation. We don't seem to have enough pressure, broad-based pressure across the economy to generate um, higher inflation in this environment. Uh, there's no real clear or there's no direct link necessarily between wages and wage growth and inflation. Uh, You can certainly see where higher wage growth gets met with um, productivity increases or certainly um, lower profit margins, right? So there's there's some some gaps there. There's some uh, between uh, wage growth and inflation that need to be felt. So at this point, I'm not terribly worried about the inflation outlook. We could probably run uh, unemployment at this fairly low level for a sustained amount of time. And I think that would be really the best outcome here. Uh, it's also worth noting that, really, if 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 push came to shove, we we actually do know how to stop inflation. And we the the worst case scenario, of course, is that you tighten policy and 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 create a recession. But we know how to do that. Um, I'd be much more worried that we're not very good about how to stimulate inflation, um, particularly when we're close to the zero bound. So I think the the risk is that uh, it really should be um, uh, trying to overshoot the inflation target a little bit than, than coming in under it. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Tim Dewey, professor of economics at the University of Oregon. And uh, sort of talking about the, the very timely jobs report, the Fed, uh, calls from Trump to Open up the monetary floodgates is my lead headline on Bloomberg right now, and uh, you know, sort of interesting just where where we are. Um, you know, in, if, when you think about the other news on the Fed side, we're seeing more nominations uh, to join the Fed. You know, the Fed board. You've got uh, Stephen Moore. You've got Herman Cain. Give give us some thoughts on on the two candidates he's, he's nominating. Yeah. So you know, stepping back, the the first sets of candidates that he, that that Trump nominated, such as Powell for the, for the chair and uh, Corals and um, uh, you know uh, Bowman. You know, th- these were all candidates that I think could have fallen out of any sort of traditional Republican or even Democratic um, uh, uh, administration. And I think the markets and 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 commentators and and analysts have really what seen those as well-received um, uh, candidates. You know, clearly we've, we've changed. Um, uh, now we're into this new world where uh, the appointments are uh, being made are, are, are certainly much more political partisans. Um, and that's, a, I think, a disturbing shift. You know, uh, Trump uh, obviously is very unhappy the Federal Reserve kept raising interest rates um, and has realized, well, he has some influence on that, and that influence is really by picking uh, um, uh, the Fed governors. Um, so I think there's a lot of danger into changing these spots to be political partisan spots. Um, uh, and and I, I don't know where it ends, what, you know, just because you know, even if Trump uh, doesn't win another term, uh, is this something that becomes um, uh, that something that that becomes the norm among uh, presidents, presidents, you know, in general? And so this is a very interesting and, and I think disturbing development. 
Are you uh, are you hearing what's? Do you have a a forecast of probability that these two gentlemen get confirmed to be? I I don't know anything about that quite yet. I I, I don't. Is there a predicted yet? I'm kind there... of thinking that these are candidates that have um uh you know that that. That, that are generally partisan candidates and, and might get more support than we all realize from uh, a Republican Senate. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, now, now, Kane has had some, He, I mean, he worked at the Kansas City Fed. He had some roles with a businessman, people say. You know, somebody with some background is, is useful for the Fed. I mean, is that, uh, do you think they need more economists? I mean, I've heard people say they have too many economists and they de- they need more business-minded folks. I don't think you necessarily need all economists at the Fed. In fact, I think that's probably not the right way to go. Um, and certainly we've moved in, in that direction. Right? So, so Jay Paul is an attorney, um, for example. Um, uh, and so the, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of person that, that thinks everybody at the Fed has to you know, have a, a Ph.D. and a specialty in, in macroeconomics. So, so that, that's one point. Now, um, uh, it, and for me... Could you be actually a competent, potentially competent person, but still politically compromised? Right. That that to me is is, is a question here. Is, is is you know I'm I'm uh, thinking that you know regardless of of Keynes' experience is that he's being picked um, uh, really as a person to uh, trumpet a specific viewpoint. Um, and less so about his actual um, uh, work experience. Um, and I'm not sure that anyone who, who advocates for a return of the gold standard is really qualified for um, a Federal Reserve governorship. Hi, Professor Dewey. Uh, very interesting. Uh, I do have a kind of a question from a layman's point of view. Do you feel because, you know, the Fed, which is not typically, you know, is not democratic kind of institution, it is like, the power it holds is so powerful. Like in some way, do you feel that you know it's too powerful? Like that's why it becomes political. So um, those that, that's a, a, an interesting question. Um, certainly, the the way we have the Federal Reserve um, set up is to be a fairly independent op, uh, institution because we think that. Um, uh, that a Federal Reserve that's under political control might not be willing to make the the hard choices that eventually might have to be made, particularly raising interest rates to stave off inflation. So we think that there's a real reason to have a a, a Federal Reserve, and we've tried to find a Federal Reserve that's that's fairly independent. And I think the system has tried to find a good balance between um, a democratic process, which is um, uh, via you know the the president's appointment of the the governors and then the senate confirmation of the of, of the governors and so that's the democratic part and then the more technical um, uh, you know that the, the issues that the um, uh, regional presidents are appointed by the boards of those those um, uh, regional banks so I think we're trying to find a balance between achieving um, uh, a democratic oversight and um, uh, uh, you know the independence issue and I'd also say that. Congress does not necessarily operate independently from the Federal Reserve. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Federal Reserve does not necessarily operate independently from Congress. Um, the Congress ultimately has oversight and can change the Federal Reserve Act should, they, should, should the Fed not be doing its job. So I'm not 
as concerned about this issue um, because I do think, you know, we've we're, we're struck a good balance here. Uh, and, again, if the Fed doesn't do its job, uh, they're, they're going to face some consequences um, uh, from, from Congress. So um, I know you've, you know, know Fed and its system very well. It's a very unique system, you know, compared to uh, the other other countries. And it's something which, you know, me being from China, I know, you know, in China, when we were students, we were, you know, taught to learn about this system. Um, but from your point of view, just be the devil's advocate. If there's like one thing you believe should you know or could be changed to make the Fed better? Like, what would you think that like those things that can make the Fed, um, you know, a little bit, you know, also kind of make it more a part of the institution? Well, um, so yeah, what, what, what could we be doing um, uh, better uh, on a monetary policy level or, or, or an institutional level? Um, you know, one one question you you can reasonably ask is. Uh, the um, uh, the director of the or the president of the New York Bank is uh, has a permanent voting spot on the uh, um, board of governors or the, on the actually the I'm sorry the uh, Federal Open Market Committee and that person is uh, uh, not selected by by the president or confirmed by the president that's done through the, the board of the New York Fed um, and so one one question should be asked you know should any of these um, positions that are permanent voting members. Um, or should all the positions that are permanent voting members be Senate confirmed to sort of enhance that um, uh, democratic aspect of the uh, uh, of the process? So, so that strikes me as as one issue. Um, I think you know the 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 Fed um, uh, has probably leaned a bit too hawkish, um, and so the 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 issues of um, uh, how are they constructing monetary policy as far as um, uh, empirical issues um, and theoretical issues should probably be um, uh, really um, open to, uh, I think, a, a greater amount of, of, of public understanding and public debate. And I think we're kind of working in that direction. Um, uh, so th- those are just a couple things that, that, that we can talk about here. Um, but uh, by and large, I would say that the institution works Fairly well, um, and uh, you know we're we're kind of making fairly small changes um, rather than than overriding changes. Now you, you mentioned somebody who should who wants to advocate for going back to the gold standard should not be considered for the Fed. I know Professor Siegel would have a very strong view. He's a Milton Friedman monetary economist, went to Chicago just to study under Milton Friedman, and uh, so he, I know he would agree. Um, but maybe just share your your take on on where and I haven't followed his actual comments on this directly, but what do you think for people who who do believe in the gold standard? What is their argument, and why where where are they going wrong? Right. I mean, there's this there's this concern out there that um, uh, the that that the Fed does not follow a, a sufficiently um, low inflation policy, um, uh, and that that these the hard money advocates, these gold advocates, believe that that's really the the only path by which we can sort of stabilize prices. Um, you know, the the, the 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 there's a, there's a couple issues I think there. You know, one is is um, historically if you if you have some kind of commodity based standard like a gold standard, you you have to expect that maybe over a hundred years just prices are are fairly stable. But there's large swings within that time. It doesn't necessarily get rid of the business cycle problem um, or the inflation or deflation problem. So. 
So I don't I don't know if there's a um, uh, um, uh, uh, you know a, a real cause there a, a real um, uh, uh, a real solution to any any problem there. Um, so you know we tend to think that the policy needs to be somewhat flexible to address you know shifts in uh, uh, the economy and and that uh, a gold standard is not going to be sufficiently flexible. You know the the upside though is that certainly. Um, uh, you know, the way we have the system arranged, there's going to be steady inflation over time. So, uh, you know, the, 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 there's going to be a the, the, the fall in the value of your dollars um, uh, over, over a period of time. I don't find that to be particularly uh, problematic as long as we have an understanding at what pace that inflation is going to be. So somewhere around 2% inflation or any st- you know, relatively low stable inflation number, um, uh, you know, should give us perfectly fine outcomes that you, uh, you know, don't necessarily need to resort to uh, um, uh, the, the constraints of a gold standard. Let me just reintroduce our guest one more time here. We're talking with Tim Dewey, professor in the economics department at the University of Oregon. Uh, and I know Lee Chen wanted to jump back in here. just want to give a quick reintroduction. Hi, um, Professor. I, 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 one more question I have is that, uh, you know, Japan has, um, the central bank has been buying stocks. And there's discussion of uh, ECB. Should the ECB be buying stocks? Do you ever see some, something about Fed ever gets into the equity market? So, yeah, right, right. There's... There is this issue that um, uh, you know the Fed's tools are in some way limited because they can't buy um, uh, equities should they need to, and that would be another way to expand the monetary toolkit. Should you should you be at the zero bound? Um, my preference is that that's that's fine if we have that option. I, I don't I don't see necessarily a problem with that. Um, uh, my preference is that we don't get to the point where we need to uh, resort to that policy stance. And so I'd rather see um, uh, more fiscal policy come to bear more quickly, um, a persistently higher level of deficits, for example, in order to you know, prevent the economy from, from needing that much monetary stimulus. That's, that's interesting. And uh where where I think it's, it's interesting to, to the conversation we are just having and, and talking about the independence of the Fed and the coordination with the government. And so Lee Chen brings up Japan, where they actually do have a fairly well-coordinated between the government uh, is a little bit more involved in monetary policy. You know, they have some people, I think, sitting in on the meetings. And, and when they were doing their QQE, their quality and quantitative easing program, they started, uh, there was sort of more coordination between sort of the pension system, who was selling bonds, they could plan buying bonds, and then they started doing buying equities. I mean, is there, is it such a bad thing to be coordinated? And if you're talking about fiscal deficits, they should, this gets into this uh, modern MMT debate where you're talking about, should we be financing the deficits with printing money? Is that uh, something we should be doing more? So, those are those are great those are great questions and my my take on Japan is that the central bank had been missing um, uh, had been really holding policy far too tight for far too long there were far too many concerns about deficit spending and um, uh, eventually the 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 ero- uh, independence of the central bank of Japan uh, uh, eroded as a result of of that um, and then there was then more you know direct government inter- intervention um, and you know it's worth saying that you don't necessarily need MMT to get there. Uh, so, you know, Ben Bernanke, you know, years ago when he, we talked about the, the, the um, uh, Japanese situation, said you, you might need much more explicit um, uh, uh, coordination between the fiscal and monetary authority if you want to alleviate issues at the zero bound. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I yes, I, I completely believe that you know that that um, uh, the 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 the, um, the we should allow for that possibility now. Um, right now, uh, you know, certainly the the government deficit is increasing on the back of the the, the Trump tax cuts. The fiscal policymakers have, in some sense, sort of kicked off that process. Um, uh, and so the issue is, you know, on the monetary policymakers side, I think you know, are they running a um, uh, you know a, a sufficiently you know an adequate um, uh, a policy that they're not offsetting more of that than they, they need to. Um, in other words, they need to be running the right policy to make sure inflation stays, um, uh, you know, near their targets and, and not persistently below like we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we had somebody from the ECB on last week, and they were defending their negative rate policies. And you know, we've had some other guests come on critiquing negative rates. And I know when they sort of taught economics back when you were studying it, you never contemplated uh, the negative rate paradigm. Is that is that something you've come around to believing? Should the and uh, I mean, I think they even the New York Fed, uh, I think President was was talking about maybe that is something that we look at as part of our toolkit. What do you think about negative rates? Yeah, that's certainly right. If you get to the zero bound again, you are talking about quantitative easing, you're talking about um, uh, negative interest rates, it's not clear how far you can push negative interest rates. Is it 50 basis points? Is it 100 basis points? What's the effective lower bound there? Um, but certainly that's a, a policy option. Again, I think that there's a greater failure of policymaking occurring if we have to go back to that um, uh, um, zone. Is that you know, uh, is that we're really then running a fiscal policy is too tight if we're persistently running uh, up up against the zero bound. You know, and Europe is arguably the same way. As Germany is running a fairly tight uh, uh, fiscal ship right now, and it's not clear that that's helping there. The the the, the situation in in Europe as far as being able to lift off from the the, the zero bound. Um, uh, and uh, I, I I do think that over the the, the past twenty or thirty years. Um, we necessarily ha- haven't necessarily seen how the global economy has changed. That, that you know, it, it seems evident that we can support higher deficits um, on the fiscal side without, um, uh, you know, some kind of uh, a subsequent inflationary pressure. I've seen some people talk that you should be considered for the Fed. Are you are you lobbying? Are you nominating to try uh, to get added I, to the Fed I, boards here? Um, I'm, well, well, clearly, clearly the bar has dropped. So uh, you know, it, it opens the door for any of us to be Fed chair <laughs> for Fed, Fed governors. Um, uh, so you know, I um, uh, I think that's very nice if people were to say that. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I'd be the best qualified for the job. Um, uh, uh, you know, but but actually, um, I do want to add a comment. So I I think uh, you mentioned about you know, Freeman. I used to work at Fed, and I love the Fed. But since Fed is in some way, it's a monopoly on on money, right? So, so if if there's some kind of institution which is not affiliated with government but serves some kind of function, um, of a Fed, like what you from your point of view, that kind of institution might be, you know, useful, and maybe you should be, you know, nominated for that because you've been, you know, crit, uh, commenting on the Fed very that, effectively. So right, some um, uh, uh, you know, like we we think of the the shadow market committee or something of, of some kind of uh, uh, you know oversight committee would be would be certainly interesting as well. Yes, very good. So uh, it's been a great general conversation here on the on the Fed, the economy. Any closing thoughts on things that we haven't covered? Things you wanted to get across? 
No, I think we've uh, um, you know done some um, uh, you know I think we've had a broad-based conversation here and and hit a lot of important topics for for uh, uh, you know market participants right now. So I think we've we've done a good job. Any other places people can can follow your work? Uh, just just Google Tim Dewey's FedWatch and you can um, uh, follow me there and sign up for my newsletter if you're uh, uh, so inclined. Very good. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you're listening to the Behind the Market podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 132. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, along with Lee Chen Ren, talking with Josh Brown of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Josh, welcome back to our program. Hey, Jeremy. Great to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, I, you're sort of all over the place on CNBC. You've got your own sort of uh, YouTube channels, blogging, Twitter. But I saw today sort of uh, an interesting, we're talking Fed, we're talking about the employment report, but you're just sort of starting a new channel talking about sort of the economy and the markets. You want to give our, our listeners a little bit about uh, about what you're doing? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. So, um, CNBC, in partnership with Acorns, which is a fintech company that is enabling um, young people mostly, uh, but really anyone who wants to, to save the excess, the round numbers from purchases that they make online in an investment account, which I think is a really good idea. Um, they've, they've kind of launched this suite of content, uh, I guess, channels with, with CNBC. And one of the things that I wanted to do was just be able to talk about things that young people don't learn when they're in high school or college, but should know about investing. And the first topic we chose to do was just this concept that it's okay to understand what's going on in the economy and have a view on it, but that shouldn't necessarily change the way that you're allocating your money. And so we kind of run through all of these examples where the economy was terrible, but the stock market was good and vice versa, and how hard it is to reliably be able to switch your mindset back and forth. And um, hopefully we get that point across to newer investors who are trying to figure all of this out for themselves. Not, not to steal the thunder from your video, we were just watching it before the show, and uh, you gave an analogy of you know, a man walking his dog. Do you want to give the, uh, sort yeah. of the, quick, the quick recap? Yeah, so that's not my analogy. I wish it was because it's so, it's so perfect. But if you think about a man walking from one end of Central Park to the other. Um, so let's say from Columbus Circle to um, the, the Metropolitan Museum. And he's got a dog. And so the man is basically walking in the same direction, uh, directly from one spot to the other. Um, but the dog, who is sort of going along in the same direction, is darting back and forth. It's chasing squirrels. Um, it stops to go to the bathroom. It barks. It jumps up and down. Sometimes it tries to run the other way and strains at its leash. Um, but both of them end up in the same place after enough time. And I think the way to think about that is the man is the economy and the dog is the stock market. So the dog is very easily excitable and very easily distracted and is very volatile and is making all sorts of movements uh, to and fro. And the man's not really deviating quite as much. And so even though they're walking together, um, if you look at one versus the other, you see a very different picture. So I think if you think about the economy as the man and you realize that there isn't quite as much deviation day to day, even though we get new data every day, the trend doesn't really change all that frequently. Um, and then understand that if you're just focused on the dog, um, you're missing the, the bigger picture. 
Actually, um, I don't own the dog, but every time I saw a dog being walked, I felt like most of the times women walk dog way more than men walk a dog. But it's really I, yeah. <laughs> so I so so Ralph Wagner. Who, um, coincidentally, he managed a, a mutual fund. I think it was called the Acorn Fund. Um, and his heyday in a, of investing was the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he wrote a few books. It's his analogy. And, so maybe uh, if I were updating it and, and making it today, I, I would have said a, a woman walking a dog or something. But I, I get, I get your, I get your point. I'm sure. afraid to get a dog because I felt it's going to be my job to walk it instead of the kids. That's why. <laughs> well. That's why we don't have. That's why we don't have one. I've got a no dog household as well. I had to clean up all after yeah. my dogs growing up. Um, you know, so Josh, when you think about all this, all the stuff you're doing, when and the acorns, acorns is a uh, it's sort of an interesting platform, sort of saving, encouraging saving. And what I've I've heard some criticism on what the cost to invest with acorns. How do you think about the sort of savings trends, the type of fees that these robo or sort of solutions are are going after for so these very small balance type of accounts? So I my my attitude about what what the cost of investing with these various platforms are is that. People need to understand that these are businesses. They're not student projects. They're not charitable foundations. So the, the criticism that you hear about a lot of the fintech startups is that they're, they're being devious in the way they're charging people, or it's not quite clear how they charge people. They're, I just I feel like they they're under the microscope because the incumbents in the industry. They they want a they want a story to go to reporters with and say oh this this new way of doing things is bad our way is good and not all the reporters buy in but I I look Acorn should make money if they're helping people save money in a way that they otherwise wouldn't it's not look it's not like so so let's say you're somebody that uses the app and you buy something for nineteen dollars and twenty two cents and Acorns gives you the ability to have the extra. 78 cents go into your investment account. I mean, we're talking about such small dollar amounts that anything they charge is going to seem like it might be a lot. But what's the alternative? The alternative is you don't save the extra money. So, like, it's got to get paid for. I feel the same way with Robinhood. I think what they're doing is really cool. And do they get paid? Yeah. They get paid on things like stock loan. And they sell your order flow to a larger institution that wants to take the other side. So what? You're going to have a counterparty anyway. And if you think you're transacting at TD Ameritrade and they're not selling your order flow, then you're like a wacko from Disneyland. This is the way it works. People get paid for offering you a service. It's no different than being on Facebook, spending four hours a day scrolling through Instagram. And, oh, by the way, they sell your information to an advertiser. What do you think? It's free? You think they build uh, a platform for two billion people to interact? And they did it like out of the goodness of their hearts. So I think it's okay that the new fintech apps are finding non-traditional ways to make money from the usage of their customers. And if you don't like it, live in a cave. Yeah. Do you do you interact with a lot of people on on Robinhood? Is it? I mean, what do you, uh, you have a sense of? Are, are the, uh, the... Uh, good. Do I have a sense of, of what? Who's on Robinhood? The, the people using Robinhood, are they, are they coming towards firms like yourselves as well to get the other sort of financial planning pictures? No, or is it no, just these? This in- is, this is, this, yeah, that's a good question. This is a customer that nobody wants, um, which is great because, it's, you know, every customer should find somebody that wants them. 
prior to Robinhood, there was no service for this customer. These are um, extremely young investors with very little in assets. Um, and then on the other side of the spectrum, there are people that are there just because they literally want to pay the least amount for everything in their life. That's not a great customer for Schwab or for TD. Uh, and Schwab and TD are charging $4 a trade. If that's too much for you, you're probably a bad customer like, like that nobody really needs. So um, Robinhood found a way to extract a money, uh, a money out of each transaction where it doesn't cost the person doing the trade a nominal commission. It may cost them in terms of them getting not as good of an execution um, or there's some other way that money is being harvested from some other component of the transaction. That's a customer that no one wants. Look, if you look at customer acquisition costs for an online broker-dealer, it's like a lot of money. They, they have to spend money to advertise to acquire a customer. So they should charge money to their customer. Otherwise, what are we doing? Like, what? Why yeah. even do anything if you can't make any money without people pointing a finger at you? So I think what Robinhood is doing is great. If, if that's the level of service that you want and you love their app, you should use it. If you want a higher level of service and a more um, establishment firm with, with your money as, as the online broker, you have Fidelity, you have Schwab, and there's room for everyone. And you, and you have uh, when, we, when we talk about Robinhood and we're sort of the way we're t- describing it here, it's like, well, they're 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 charging these back end fees and it's hidden. But we're talking about things like that instead of twenty five dollars and ten cents, it's twenty five dollars and nine point four five three cents. Like right, so it's such a fraction of the pennies that these uh, whatever the it's difference weird, in, in execution is. It's pennies, but I understand if you work for the Wall Street Journal and you and you write personal finance columns. Um, or Bloomberg View, or you know, like like if you if if this is your if this is your gig is to expose like these types of things or make people aware of them, it's not bad. You should do that. So the columnists are are pointing out rightly that nothing is really free in the world, and that's true. And the companies are saying, okay, but this is the way we do it. And if customers don't like it, then they don't have to come to us. What's great about financial services is that there aren't any monopolies. There really aren't. So you like index funds? Great. Here they are. You don't like them? Okay, no problem. Here's something else. I don't understand why it has to be winner-take-all. There is no business on earth that ends up being winner-take-all. There are customers that want to be charged in a certain way, and then there are other customers that want to be charged in a different way, and then there are customers that literally don't even want to understand how they get charged. They just want to feel like they're aligned emotionally with a specific brand and then there's everything in between you guys are Wharton radio I have to tell you that so um, people need to stop with this concept where one thing has to come along and kill this other thing and just say more realistically what's probably going to happen is we will separate into the different apps and services that we like based on personal preferences and it really won't matter that much if it's relatively the same cost but one person prices it you know differently let me oh. just reintroduce. We're talking with Josh Brown, the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, and I, I interrupt you. Sorry, I, I just am so excited about your comments that people should not, you know, people put so much emphasis of, you know, it's a zero sum game, you know, win the takes all. Because I feel that is really a not 
not correct way to understand the the, the way market works. So I really like your comments. Just want to say, um, I do want to have a question. I um, in your blog you mentioned you know picking sectors instead of stocks. Um, I think you know nowadays um, a lot of um, you know asset allocation across sectors, across factors, you know across countries have getting more attention. Like, what's your your take now when you talk to your clients? Well, we so we don't think that we have an ability to pick sectors. We try to build um, globally diversified uh, uh, strategic portfolios, and when we go overseas and we build international uh, portfolios, um, I guess my comment would be, my opinion would be, a lot of what we describe as geographic differences in returns are really industry differences in returns, um, and and I've had many great conversations with people like. Um, Jeremy and and others uh, about this very topic, and it's relentlessly fascinating to me. Why do some industries dominate the stock markets of some countries or regions, while others don't? And what accounts for the difference? And how much of the return of a market is is based on that? And so, obviously, the classic example is having really big mining companies dominate the UK market or Latin America. And then continental Europe is heavily dominated by the large banks. The United States, 20% of the market is now technology, probably on its way to 30%. Um, and, and so what if Europe had a stronger technology sector? Would the returns for European stocks be drastically different um, over the last 10 years? I would argue, obviously. Um, there are some that would say not necessarily, uh, and I'm up for that debate. But I think when we think about globally diversified portfolios, what we're, what we're trying to do is, yes, we want to capture the returns of stock markets around the world because they're non-correlated and some will be better than others at different points in time. Um, but we also want to just be aware that a lot of what's going to drive that are things that have nothing to do with uh, where um, a stock market is. And it'll have more to do with what composes the stock market. Jeremy, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think uh, I think I would agree with your obvious comment. Like, if the, the part of the reason we think about why has what's the major trend? Why is growth beaten value? What's going on in the U.S. is just how much more tech dominated it is, and there just isn't that platform over in Europe. I mean, it's very much it's a much much smaller segment of the market. It's definitely you name a European can you name a European technology giant off the top of your head? Unfortunately, I look at this stuff a lot, so things like SAP, but it's that that's the only that one that one. comes to to, to mind. Yeah. In some way, does maybe France, does France have any? Yeah, no, the yeah. I mean, can fashion be counted as technology? <laughs> um, right. But but I I think you're right. You know, their paper which has shown that country rotation is nothing but sector rotation. Like they are really yep. overlapping. But I think the interesting thing that you mentioned about winner takes all is not the good way to look at it. And I just remember, you know, Annie Duke uh, gave a talk at the uh, conference and she said, you know, some people play poker to win, but some people play poker just to have fun. And, you know, you can satisfy different kind of customers. Not everybody wants, you know, the the cheapest, lowest uh, uh, thing. And some of them may not have time to go find it out. So it's not to use the winner take all. Oh, I think that's a a great point. And... You know, there's a thing that goes on at Yankee Stadium every year, which is like um, a hedge fund derby, where all of the family office uh, people and all of like the wealthy private investors and all the fund of funds, they they gather there. It's like a pitchathon. So 
So like all of the, the cap intro people from the investment banks that are helping hedge funds raise money and the prime brokers are there. And it's like just a day of meet and greets and presentations and the hedge funds that are looking for investors tell their story. Like, why would you invest with us? What do we do? Why are we different? What are our historical returns? What's our strategy? There are people there that aren't trying to find the top performing hedge fund of the coming year. They understand that that's not reasonable to have as an expectation, but they enjoy the process of listening to smart investors and being invested in their funds and, and understanding the strategy. And they take the risk that they're going to way overpay for a strategy that doesn't add alpha or doesn't outperform or whatever. Like they understand that they're not stupid. They're billionaires, but it's just like, it's this part of investing where it doesn't fit into the paradigm of the rational actor and the efficient market. Like this is, we're living our lives. People, people want to experience things. They want to try things. They understand what the math is, but the math is not driving every single decision they make. So I think that's a wonderful point. I think that extends to a lot of areas of investing. There are people that want to own thematic ETFs. They say, I think drones are going to be big and I want to invest in drones. Okay, go invest in drones. There's an ETF for that. Is it, is it, is it smart? Historically, is that, going to, you know, is that the kind of thing where it looks good? Um, if you do something like that, probably not. It's probably dumb. Probably but better than why. picking the individual right. drone stock is probably the, the right answer there, too. That's yeah. probably even dumber, right? Yeah, no, but <laughs> like you said, it's, it's probably better than in picking individuals. So, you know, even though it's... It's a little more diversified. Yeah. Um, it, right. It's, uh, it's an interesting example to talk about just having fun and uh, it's it's like people want that co- cocktail party exciting discussion. It's like you don't – now it's maybe some of the cocktail party discussion is going to Lee Chen's old firm Vanguard where you just need to have the lowest fee. That's the new cocktail party discussion. How much are you Jeremy, paying? Let me tell you – Jeremy, <laughs> let, me tell you what we, let me tell you what we do. So we have clients come to us all the time and a lot of them come because they see me in the media like they'll, or Barry. Like they'll see – they'll – Barry on Bloomberg interviewing a famous uh, hedge fund manager or venture capitalist, or they'll see me on CNBC doing a show about the stock market. And they'll come and there are people that like the stock market. And and a lot of them trade recreationally. And a lot of them want to have some fun with their money and give themselves the chance to to outperform, understanding there's a risk they won't. We're not going to look, we're we're not doing that for them. Like, we're not going to play the game with them. And like, pitch them, you know, uh, biotech stocks. To tra- like, it's just not what we do. We're doing asset allocation and financial planning, and we're really good at it. Um, but we're not good at speculating and having fun. And, you know, but we're not going to shut them down. So we'll say, look, a part of, look, you, you have $4 million in, in liquid net worth, and you enjoy watching CNBC and tra- keep $200,000 of that in an account and do whatever you want. Just don't go on margin and don't ask us for more. And we'll even set the account up for them. Our main custodians are Schwab or TD Ameritrade Institutional. We'll set the account up alongside your real accounts and knock yourself out. Wake up every day and trade. I, we care less. I hope you do great. It'll make, it'll make it easier to hit your financial plan if you're the next George Soros. We wish you all the best. You know what ends up happening? They do that for six months, nine months, a year. They have wins. They have losses. And then they get bored with it. And they realize that there's more fun things to do in life, um, like buy a boat or go skiing or whatever. And then ultimately, that trading account gets folded back into the money that we're managing for them. 
We have no problem with it. By all means, go do it. Have fun. We're, we're totally fine with it. I get it. I, I trade some individual stocks myself, too, for fun. Big deal. We're, we're, we're all only on Earth for a certain amount of time. We should, we should all enjoy ourselves. Yeah, there's that that perception of where you're on TV and you're doing the fast money, and then but you're you know the... I love it. What's not to love? It's, yeah. it's the game of it's a, it's the game of business. Like I I own some individual stocks. My real money is invested in the same asset allocation models as my clients' money um, in our 401ks. But then if I want to be a shareholder of Shake Shack because I'm a fan of Danny Meyer and I love the the burger, I don't I don't owe anyone. Uh, an explanation. It's my money. Is it, is it Shake Shack or In and Out? Which one is uh, the better burger? You can invest in In and Out, but I would invest in that also. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I love Here. the comment of uh, uh, using your own money because I, I remember in your uh, blog you mentioned trust only the chefs who eat their own cooking. And uh, you know, right. after I after I joined the Wizardry, I was telling you know um, our employees that you know we should be the biggest champions of. Uh, of our strategies, because if you don't even believe in what we are making now, you know, right for for an investor, who's gonna you know believe with us? Yeah, you know, um, we our four hundred one ks the the models that are available to our employees are identical to the models that are available to um, our clients, and that seems so obvious. Like you say to yourself, why wouldn't every firm have that as a policy? You'd be amazed. And actually, um, I know some things that I can't repeat, but some things, <laughs> some things from from the big index firms where they say you'd be amazed who keeps their personal money here, um, you know, versus like the way these people invest publicly. Very famous, very wealthy, well-known, uh, hard-charging alpha guys who have a lot of their personal net worth sitting in three basis point ETFs. So, you know, uh, I, I just think like. Um, if you can align the way you're, you're managing your own money with what you're telling clients, uh, it's a good thing. And I'm surprised it's, it's not a, a standard thing throughout the industry. Talk, talk a little bit more about Ritholtz. And so I know you guys have been bringing a lot of different advisors onto your platform. Um, and for the people who sort of are joining, what are the, the characteristics that you think that you're bringing to, to the sort of advisors who are joining that they, they didn't have in, in other places? So we're hiring a couple of different types of advisors. The first is a young advisor relatively recently out of school, um, someone who's on the CFP track or has recently completed the CFP um, certification. We think having certified financial planners as the client-facing advisors is a big part of our value add. We will not make a portfolio recommendation to a client until they've completed a financial plan. And that's a multi-step, multi-meeting or phone call process. And... um, Again, this is another thing that seems obvious, but it wasn't obvious to us until uh, my partner, Chris, kind of put his foot down and said, this is the way we're running the business. And he was so right. How could you possibly tell someone what they should invest in if you don't know what they're going to do with the money or when they're going to need the money or what their tax rate is or what, what, what's, you know, what are the, the variables in their career that might drastically alter their, their objectives? Um, like, like, how could you... How can you possibly say, okay, uh, it was nice meeting you an hour ago. Here's the portfolio I recommend. So we do very, very exhaustive financial planning work up front before someone becomes a client. Um, That's a risk to us to spend that much time with someone. Fortunately, most people that go through our process um, and that should become a client do. Um, But we need 
client-facing advisors who can complete that process. Um, and so we'll, we're predominantly hiring people who have the CFP designation for that role or are on track to get it. And we've sponsored a few young people to, to get it, which is great. The other type of advisor that we've hired are people that either they're running their own registered investment advisory firm or they're working at someone else's and they're just so aligned with our message. They're reading our blog posts. They're listening to our podcasts. They're sending our material to their clients. And then they just say to themselves, this is so obvious. I, I believe in what these guys are saying and what they're doing. Why wouldn't I just go work with them? So we have made some tremendous hires, people that have ha that have that exact story. And in fact, uh, this past month, we just opened our office in North Carolina. This is a, a, a young man who's been building a, a practice at another at an independent broker dealer, but is sending our content to his clients every day. And he just said, you know what, let me call these guys and see if there's an opportunity. And it turns out there is because we need uh, people who can talk to our readers and our fans and help them. So we're talking to advisors nationwide, talking to people in, in many different states and cities, and not everyone is a fit, not everyone's gonna make the cut, but when we find someone tremendous, we, we pounce on it because that's what we, we really need right now. Top city that you're not in that you wanna be in? I wanna be, well, so we didn't do it this way. We didn't go by, let's pick a geography yeah. and then find someone. It's we just built the people. It the opposite. We're looking for the right people, and then we'll make it work in a city. However, dream location for us, I need somebody in, um, I need somebody in uh, Houston or Dallas, and I need somebody in Washington, D.C. immediately. And I will find those people, but we have not found the ideal person yet. Well, there was a FinTwit happy hour last night. I'm sure you guys had some people there. Um, but it's been, we had friends there. Yeah, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you did. Um, we're unfortunately now out of time, but Josh, always a pleasure to talk. Thanks for coming on our program. This was so much fun. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Nice to talk to you. We've been talking with Josh Brown, CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, a friend, uh, a, cl a client of the firm. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Thanks, Lee Chen. As always, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.